Good evening, everybody. Good to be with you again tonight as we wrap up our first teaching series of the year, um, which has been called Uncertainty. And the point of this series, um, if you've been around um, the last couple of weeks, has been to challenge our fears when it comes to being certain about things um, like our religious faith, or more precisely our fears when it comes to being uncertain. And then the goal has been to try and discover through the course of exploring these feelings how uncertainty is actually something that can help us grow in, in our confidence, is the word we've been using, in our confidence in the things that we believe. We've been talking about how the world that we live in doesn't really offer us many things to be truly sure about. And a big part of the series has been starting to to ask the question, maybe, just maybe, that's kind of the point of things. Maybe things aren't designed so that we can have complete understanding of them and then file that understanding away in the kind of the archive of our mind. Maybe things are, in fact, designed to push us to be seekers, who are people who actively invest in our world and in our relationship with the God who created that world. And this week, we're looking at how living as seekers plays out when it comes to our witness or our ways of sharing our growing confidence with other people in the world. And I'd like to start this exploration actually with a question. And the question is, when was the last time that you experienced real wonder? When was the last time that you experienced real wonder? And when you did, when you did experience wonder, what did you do? What did you do with it? I spent a lot of time this week trying to think about this for myself um, and to come up with a story that I haven't already shared with all of you before, which is getting increasingly hard the longer I do this. I feel like I'm running out of stories um, very quickly, especially ones that don't involve either being attacked by a mostly harmless animal, which I've discovered is a theme in a lot of stories that I share, or going to the national park, which is the other big theme. And, and what I've come up with is this. Here's my, my wonder story. I don't know how to like give this enough punch. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not good at like punching up something, so I'm just going to say it out with it. There is a gigantic alligator snapping turtle that lives in the pond next to my house. This is true. I swear by it. And I mean like enormous when I'm talking about this thing. The problem is that nobody believes me. Um, nobody believes in this turtle except for me. And because I am somebody who routinely watches, like, Sasquatch and UFO documentaries, which, I mean, documentary is a loose term, I guess, when we're talking about these things, but, but nonetheless, I watch these things, I consume them rabid, ravenously, and because of that, no one that lives in my house believes me about the turtle. Now, I first saw this guy, which I would estimate, just to give you some size, like, I would estimate this turtle to be about the size and the weight of like an engine block of a car, if you're familiar with such a thing. It is huge. I first saw him about three years ago. 
And there's nothing remarkable about the story. I was like heading home from work and I looked out over this tiny pond that's next to our house and there it just was, right? It was just sitting in the middle of the pond, floating on the surface, this enormous thing. And I couldn't believe it. And so I ran into the house, of course, and I tried to get Meredith and the kids to come out to look at this thing because we had never seen anything in this pond bigger than like a bullfrog. Like I can't understand how it's there or what it's living on or any of that. But nonetheless, by the time I get the family out there, course it's like gone back under the water and nobody's seen it and this has carried on for three years now of like me looking and occasionally spotting it and then trying to get the family to come look at it and then it's gone and this has been going on and on and on so i don't know i catch him like i said a couple times a year but so far no other witnesses i don't know why he's there i don't know how long he's been there i don't know how he got there but it kills me that nobody else believes he is there and then this past fall, there was an interesting development in the turtle story. I was in the mailbox in our neighborhood, and I ran into a woman um, who lives in the next building over. And she had recently had a baby, and so I was asking her how things were going, you know, having a baby during uh, a global pandemic, which some of the people in this room have done. Um, I was trying to ask her how things were going, and then out of the blue, this lady that I barely know mentions that she had seen this giant snapping turtle in the pond that is also behind her house. And I absolutely like freaked out in a way that startled her and like really kind of like was a problem. And then she started laughing and she said that like she had been having this totally same experience with her own husband who also doesn't believe in the turtle. And so she's been like trying to get him to see it. And so we had this like bonding moment um, as like two people who witnessed the same UFO. Now, maybe this is a silly story, right? But here's where I'm hoping that it can go. My theory, my theory is that real wonder is a kind of antidote for our temptation to be salesmen for the things that we believe in or invest in. That real wonder is a kind of antidote to the temptation to be salesmen. I think that the truth of the matter is that we're all wired to be on teams, teams at work, teams at home, teams that we root for. And I think that this means that when it comes to things that are important to us and to the rhythms of our lives, like, for example, being a part of a church community, I think that there's a part of us that wants other people to be on the team with us. We want our social circles to overlap, if only because it makes life easier because there are fewer things to go do. But if all we're doing is trying to get somebody else to join our team, then what can happen, what maybe has happened to you, is we can end up sounding like we're trying to sell something door to door. And if there's one thing that I think modern life has done to all of us, it has made us incredibly wary of sales pitches, right? We throw away the Bed Bath & Beyond coupons when we get them. We delete old Navy emails, which come like a million times a day if you've ever given them your email. We hang up on a voice the minute we detect that it's an automated call or our phone tells us ahead of time now that we should be hanging up, which is great. We skip commercials when we're allowed to skip them. We don't like pitches. And this leads us, I think, to this very real problem as people who, by being a part of a church community, are choosing to pursue something with our lives that not everybody else that we know is choosing to pursue. And that is that I genuinely want the people in my life to at least understand why this is important to me. But the last thing in the world I would ever want to do to somebody that I care about is give them a pitch. 
But wonder, I think, wonder, I think, is the answer. When we experience wonder, I think we rarely know exactly what it is that we're, what we're seeing, and yet we share it anyway. And I think that, I think the sincerity of saying, can you believe this? I think that is what clicks with our curiosity over and above our certainty. Among the, the gospel narratives of Jesus' life, there are these three stories about women who experience and respond to a moment of wonder about Jesus in ways that I think can instruct us as a church as we wrap up this series. And the first of these stories comes in the Gospel of Luke, and in particular in Luke's account of Jesus' birth. And in this story, um, angels appear in the sky to a group of shepherds, familiar with this from Christmas time probably, and then those shepherds are so amazed by what they see with these angels that they actually do a crazy thing if you ever stop to think about it, which is like they go into the town and I suppose just like knock on doors asking if somebody's had a baby. Or something. I don't know what they even know what they're asking for, but they go door to door, seeming probably like crazy people. But sure enough, in the end, they actually find Jesus. And when they do, this is what this is what we see. They say that he is lying in a manger. And once they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary, Jesus's mother, treasured up all these things. She pondered them in her heart. I think about this every Christmas time. We've never, to my knowledge, like talked about it in a, in a sermon or anything at Christmas. But it is like my favorite moment in the whole story, I think. I think the first part of that story ties in pretty directly to what we're talking about, right? That the shepherds are amazed. They don't totally know what they've seen. They find Jesus and they go on and they tell everybody what happened to them, which is great. They can't possibly know who Jesus is. They certainly can't know what in the world Jesus is going to do with his life. So they only have a piece of the story, but their encounter is so incredible that they go around and they tell other people about it anyway. And that's cool. That's an amazing thing. It's something that we can learn from. But for me, the point I want to get at tonight in particular is the wonder that we see in that last verse when Mary, Jesus' mother, treasures up all the things that have been happening and ponders them in her heart. I think we think of Mary often in the church, but I don't know that we typically remember that Mary was a child, that she was no more than probably 15 at the most, and that her whole life had been kind of turned upside down by this visit from an angel some nine months earlier. And we know that that visit, as miraculous as it was, didn't solve all of her problems. We know that her, her husband or fiancé, Joseph, was skeptical. But I wonder, I wonder if, despite the obvious, which would be her pregnancy, if there were moments where Mary also had doubt about what was going on. And if so, I have to think that this moment with the shepherds was a tremendous relief for her, a moment of validation, because it's the first time that something happens outside of her circle that says, hey, that thing that happened to you really happened. That thing that's going on right now is miraculous, not just for you, but for people beyond you and your husband. That it's all as grand as she was told that it would be. And so I love that she takes this moment of validation and then she holds it in her heart to ponder and to think on it. 
And as much as the shepherds are good role models, I think, I want us to start tonight by challenging ourselves to be willing to imitate Mary too. And that she takes the miracle, she takes the wonder, and she holds on to it, and she turns it over. If, if you're still here at this church, after two years of a pandemic and one year of online services, I think there, the conclusion I would draw from that is that there is something about all of this that is important to you, or at least has kind of a hold on you. You're still here. That's weird. There are a lot of people that aren't. You've experienced, I would argue, you've experienced some miracle or some kind of encounter with God that has its hooks in you and that you can't quite let go. And maybe there are times where you're hard on yourself about, about this, or more precisely, you're hard on yourself for not doing enough with it. Like maybe you're upset with yourself because you don't come to church enough, or you haven't agreed to lead something, or you don't share this news about what you believe with your coworkers on every you know, third Friday of the month, or whatever you schedule you set up for yourself. And maybe those are like good things, things that are worth doing. First, tonight, I want to stop and actually tell you that it's okay to just treasure and ponder things, too. In fact, maybe that's the thing that you need to do the most. And tonight, I kind of hope that you will commit to trying that out. What have I seen? Why does it have its hooks in me in the first place? What might it mean? What are these, these things that have this anchor hold on you in your faith? you think about them enough instead of just worrying that you don't do enough like steps two through hundred step one what is it that's got its hold on you when we pause and we allow ourselves to hold on to a moment of wonder we don't just learn more about it i think we also learn about what it means to us and so whatever your reason is for calling yourself a christian or even if you wouldn't call yourself that you call yourself a person who's spiritually curious Whatever your, your reason is, it's worth naming that reason and treasuring it and pondering it. Does it still make you feel wonder? The second story tonight is often referred to as the story of the woman at the well. And in it, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman and reveals to her that he is the Messiah or the Savior of the world that all the prophets have spoken about, which feels like a big thing to drop on somebody and that's exciting, but surprisingly in the story, if you go back and look at it, it's not the thing that actually inspires wonder in this woman's life. Rather, her wonder is produced by Jesus' ability to call her out on a lie that she just told about her husband. She says that she doesn't have one, and, and then Jesus tells her that she's had five, and that the man that she's currently living with isn't her husband and there's this richness in this moment that's worth, well, it's worth pondering. But our attention tonight focuses, I think, on what happens next, which is this. John writes, Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town. And she said to the people, Come, not see the Messiah. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans, let's skip ahead a few verses, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers, and they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What sticks with this woman in this story isn't the Messiah part, which seems like the most amazing news that you could actually get, right? This is the big news. What sticks for her is that Jesus knows her and knows her story. And even better, that thing, that he knows her, is what goes on to persuade all of the town people, townspeople, which is also strange. It says, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And here's, I think, my point that I'm driving out with the story. The woman at the well and everybody in Samaria has heard Messiah stories before. It's not that these stories aren't important. It's just that at this point in history, somebody coming into town and saying that Messiah is a sales pitch. But Jesus amazes her by seeing her. And she shares that amazement with other people. And then they respond. So tonight, we're trying to figure out what it means for us to be a seeking community of faith open to all seekers. And what happens sometimes when we focus on telling people what we think we know, which is I think what we often think of when we talk about evangelism or sharing or inviting people to church or whatever we want to tell people, the things that we think we know, the things we're most confident about. But when we do that, we turn this whole thing into an argument. But it's not meant to be an argument. The law of Israel once upon a time was an argument. And that argument didn't make the people more righteous. The point of Jesus' actual presence in the world is wonder. That God will come to you. That God will see you. That God will stick around so that you can know him. I think what we can learn from this woman is that we don't need to argue other people into joining our faith or joining our church or any of that stuff. What we need to share, what we need to share is what's wonderful about all of this stuff. So the love of God and the presence of God are real, which I believe they are. And there's enough of that to go around. There's enough of that to amaze other people too if they encounter it. Your wonder, even if as in this case, your wonder is something that seems to miss the bigger point. Your wonder is enough. In fact, your wonder, at least if the story is to be trusted, is a magnet. Which, I mean, this is where I'm hoping will happen with the snapping turtle, right? Like, you'll want to see it. Meredith, you'll want to see the turtle. Anyways, what happens if even you don't understand what you're seeing, though, right? That's the third point. And the last story tonight is repeated in two of the Gospels, but we're going to look at the account in John. And here's what it says. This is from John 20. Now Mary stood outside. This is Mary Magdalene, not Mary, Jesus' mother. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She, she turned toward him and she cried out, teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. Again, not the news she was told to share, but the news that she does share. She told them that he had said these things to her. Now, in this story, Mary Magdalene works through a process of discovery, right? There's this empty tomb, and it fills her with grief. She's going there, and then the questions of the man that she takes to be a gardener, those questions like make her feel embarrassed and accusatory. And then the revelation that Jesus has risen from the dead, which is this utterly fantastic and incredible, wonderful, we use the word, wonderful thing, that triggers this burst of joy and excitement in her. And then she takes that joy and that excitement to the disciples. And it's entirely reasonable, some people make this point, right? It's entirely reasonable to label Mary Magdalene the first evangelist there ever was, which is a beautiful thing to think about. She's the first person to realize that Jesus has somehow defeated death and And then to go on to tell other people about it. But it is so, so important, I think, to notice here that she, the first evangelist, isn't thinking in any of those terms yet. She is not parsing out on her run back from the tomb to the disciples' house. She's not parsing out substitutionary atonement. She's not parsing out the nature of incarnation. What she is doing is she has seen her friend whose body, whose dead body, she came to wash And she has seen him alive and whole. And so she runs to tell the rest of his friends what she's seen. It is in the purest sense a moment of wonder. Come and see. One thing we miss, I think, in the story, and there's a bit of the snapping turtle happening here, is that when Mary finds these disciples, she doesn't say he has risen or he is gone. I think we would think she says he is risen. That's what we say on Easter mornings, right? He is risen. He's risen indeed. That's not what she says. She doesn't say he's risen. She doesn't say he's gone. What she says is, I have seen the Lord. That is what's so amazing to her. But when the disciples follow her to the tomb, that is specifically not what they see. Because Jesus isn't there. So they're disappointed. We know at least one of them continues to hold on to his doubts about the whole story. So what can we learn here about sharing our wonder? What happens if what we see isn't what they see? My point tonight is that convincing the disciples isn't Mary's job. Her job is to be true to the miracle that she did. To react to it in a way that's open and vulnerable and honest. That lets it pour out of her, even if her friends don't get it. I know why nobody in my family believes me about the turtle, right? It's because I'm Bigfoot curious. That's why. So they don't trust me. 
But I can't control whether or not my family thinks I'm silly. It's too late. And when I ran in the door to tell them that time about this turtle, I wasn't worried about whether I seemed silly to them in the slightest. I wasn't worried about all the damage I'd done by investigating mermaids for whatever reason once upon a time. I had seen this wild thing, and I wanted other people to see it too. That's it. I wanted them to do that if only so I wouldn't feel crazy for being the person who saw it. I think the point is that Jesus actually is wonderful. He actually is wonderful. And what we have a chance to do when we witness and experience the wonder of Jesus is to believe and then to let that belief overflow, trusting that the thing that amazed us, that convinced us and persuaded us is on its own capable of amazing and persuading somebody else too. And it doesn't need your help to do that. As a church, I think it is so important that we don't trade wonder for arrogance and easy answers, which is what I think we do so often. It is important that we hold on to mystery, even when it can seem overwhelming and can make us feel foolish or like we don't know enough. But I also want to be clear that when I say these things, what I am not saying is that the answers don't matter or that we should be non-committal in our faith or that we shouldn't know what we believe or we should just be wishy-washy. I'm not saying any of that at all. What I am saying in this series, what I hope you have heard in this series is simply this. It is that God is more. God is more. And as we seek after him in prayer, and as we seek after him in a church community, as we seek after him by trying to follow his example in practical ways in our lives, he gives us more and more of himself as we do those things. And yet as he gives us more and more of himself, he also keeps moving on ahead of us. And we are in this trailing position behind him where we gather and gather and we learn and we learn and we never get to the end of him. And ultimately... This is exactly why he's here. Because that is actually how a real relationship is supposed to work. It's how all of your relationships work. You don't get to the end of people. You know them more and more and more over time. We are walking with the God of the universe. Since the Garden of Eden, this is the thing that we were made for. It's the thing we're meant for. 